0: This year, we hosted our award ceremony and gala at the famous San Francisco landmark, the Ferry Building, and we continued the evening with an intimate dinner across the street at the Commonwealth Club state-of-the-art new building. The evening provided us with the opportunity to honor five distinguished citizens. Madeline Albright, John Hope Bryant, Bill and Susan Oberndorf, and Susan DiBianca all joined us for brief discussions regarding their civic participation and their connection to the club. Please enjoy these conversations with this year's honorees. A brief overview of each award recipient will precede their interview. Here is recipient Madeleine Albright in conversation with me, Gloria Duffy. The first woman to hold the position, Dr. Madeleine Albright is best known for her tenure as the 64th Secretary of State of the United States under President Bill Clinton. Her notable career as a diplomat, professor, author, and businesswoman is legendary. She has served on the National Security Council as foreign policy advisor to the Democratic Party and as ambassador to the United Nations. She is founder of the Albright Stonebridge Group and Albright Capital Management. She's chairperson of the National Democratic Institute and president of the Truman Scholarship Fund. She is a distinguished professor of diplomacy at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and author of six best-selling books, including the 2018 New York Times bestseller, Fascism, a Warning. In 2012, former Secretary Albright was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama in recognition of her many contributions to international peace and security. And thank you, and again, thank you all for your generosity. Now comes the special part of the evening we've all been looking forward to. The first thing I'd like to say to Secretary Albright is happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday you to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Madeline. Happy birthday to you. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. It was Wednesday. Right. Two days ago, yes? Right. Correct. So, Secretary Albright, I have to ask you. You talked about your pins in the video. I'm looking at this interesting uh, moving pin you have on. Can you tell us the significance? Well, well, first of all,
1: thank you so much, and I'm delighted to be here. I have uh, spoken with you before, and been a speaker at various Commonwealth occasions, and I'm deeply honored to be honored. Thank you by this remarkable club that does exactly the kinds of things that you've been talking about in terms of civil discussion and all the good things. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I think that basically, um, I thought it went with my outfit, but, uh, but, uh, it is kind of a sign of a moving star, I think, in terms of having many aspects to it that can adjust to a lot of the situations. And, uh, and I now do know that we're talking about space, so I kind of thought that that would be a good symbol. But mostly because it works.
0: <laughs> it's a great one, and it yeah. does work. A few more serious questions. Trade wars and tariffs are very much in the news today tell us what you think of the current uh, controversies regarding tariffs particularly with china what are tariffs best used for Um, how do you think we should proceed in this current situation
1: well let me put it into a little bit of context i do teach at georgetown And I say, foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And my course is called the National Security Toolbox. And the truth is, uh, we are obviously the most powerful country in the world, but there are not a lot of tools in the toolbox. And I learned that when during the Carter administration, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, um, we were trying to figure out how to punish them. We knew that we couldn't get them out right away. And I went to this crazy interagency meeting, and people are sitting around saying, what are we going to do? And somebody said, we'll cut off their grain or their fishing rights, or we'll have a call-up for the draft, or we won't send our athletes to the Olympics. And I thought what kind of a weird toolbox is this? Um, And I kind of thought about what's in it. And the truth is that they're not a lot. And so there's bilateral diplomacy and multilateral, and then the economic tools, trade and aid, sanctions, the threat of the use of force, the use of force, uh, intelligence, and law enforcement. That's it. And Basically, often what are chosen are the economic tools because they really are kind of the, as we all know, that have been in the government, it's the middle option. Um, but I do think that it is difficult to figure out exactly how to activate it because it does take uh, Congress in in many ways. Um, and, it is, uh, and so watching what's been going on in terms of clearly our relationship with China is a, the key relationship in so many ways... And um, they really are, we are um, economies that are dependent on each other. This is not a very sophisticated definition, but I heard it from a China, a China expert at Brookings that the relationship that the U.S. has with China is like a drug, act, drug addict and a pusher. The problem is we don't know which is which. And so <laughs> the bottom line, that is, it's been demonstrated now in many different ways in terms of the tariffs and the tit for tat, I think we, frankly, to answer, I don't know where this is going uh, because the negotiations seem to have been going in the right direction and all of a sudden got derailed. According to what I've read, it's the Xi Jinping did not like some of the ways things were stated. And so now we're wait- waiting for the next phase when President Trump and Xi Jinping are going to meet at the G20. But we do not yet know what the effects of it are going to be.
0: There seems to be uh, constituencies in the U.S. that are very upset, uh, particular industries, farmers, etc., who are upset about the possible impact on their business of a trade war with China. Do you think the president ought to pay attention, pay more attention to the constituencies in the U.S. that are concerned about the impact? Or if we stay tough on this, will they be better off in the long run?
1: Well, uh, it depends on the constituencies. But I I really do think that uh, it is important for a president to understand what the effects or the intended and unintended consequences are of decisions. And clearly, the thing that I found in teaching in many ways is that trade is the tool that affects more people than anything else. I initially used to say it was the use of force, but with a volunteer military, that is no longer true. And so trade really does affect more different constituencies. I do think it's important to understand what the economic impact is, and it can't be just transactional in terms of, doing something that has kind of immediate satisfaction without understanding what it does to the farmers, the soybeans, and various other aspects. And the, the consumers, frankly, I think that we know the tariffs, uh, it, it's important, I'm not sure he understands this, but the tariffs are actually paid for by American citizens, um, and so it is a tax on those that shop and buy uh, goods made in China. It obviously does have an effect on the Chinese economy, but it is important to understand what the effect is and whether it's short-term or long-term. And I think in many ways it becomes long-term because there has to be an adjustment in terms of which industries do what, where the investment comes. And so it may feel good for a few minutes, but I think that the problem is how to see what the long-term effects are.
0: Last year, around this time, you and I had a conversation here at the Commonwealth Club. Um, It was after your book called uh, Fascism, A Warning, came out. And in your book, you made a, a very persuasive case that worldwide there's a lot of cause for concern that's similar to the concerns in the 1930s about the suppression of individual freedoms and the rise of fascism and so on. A year later, how are you feeling about this? Do you feel the trend has accelerated? And I'm not talking about just in the U.S., because you commented on many, many societies around the globe. Or do you think the trend is being rolled back?
1: It's actually, I think, gotten worse in many ways in terms of um, looking at what has happened, first of all, I did put it into a historic context, but I was concerned about the things that were happening um, in current uh, regimes that are tending in that direction. We just saw an example of that of of Orban coming to the United States and um, developing what I consider an oxymoron um, in definition, illiberal democracy. It doesn't kind of go together. Um, and so he is gaining power. I do think also that what has just happened again in the elections in the Philippines, looking at that, the most recent addition to this group is Brazil, Um, I think in terms of the elections there. Um, and so also kind of the evolution of some of the places that are worrisome. Turkey. Um, and um, really looking, trying to figure out what's going on in Venezuela. Um, and so I am worried about that. On the other hand, I do see, when I look carefully, that there are pushbacks in some places. So I was just in Poland. There have been some pushbacks there. And even in Hungary, there have been pushbacks. And so I think it's important to understand that um, it is not static, but I am worried. And by the way, I, I mentioned then, but I repeat this, is that the best quote in the book comes from Mussolini, uh, that if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. And so there's a lot of feather plucking going on at the moment. And by the way, you can't say those two words together quickly. Uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I, I think we have to be very careful about what's going on.
0: Switching gears... One of the reasons, I know you come to San Francisco partly because of the wonderful Commonwealth Club. However, I know that you come here also because of your wonderful daughter. Right. <laughs> and we're very lucky that Secretary Albright has family here in, the, in San Francisco, and therefore we get to see her. Tell us a little bit about your daughter, who is here tonight, and what she does here in oh, San Francisco. Thank you. Of that,
1: course. So my daughter, uh, my youngest daughter, um, is a uh, head of... Katie. Haiti, um that really uh, is now an organization that's uh, called Safe and Sound, but it is trying to prevent child abuse uh, in the region. I have to say I was kind of surprised that in an incredible uh, place such as San Francisco, there even is such a problem, but she has worked on it very hard. And when she applied to law school... Uh, she, at even that stage, said she just wanted to learn a language to help children. So she is doing that. And I'm very proud of what she does. That, uh, yeah. Yeah. We celebrate Katie, and we also celebrate that she brings you here. Well, I have to admit, I'll take any invitation to come to
0: San Francisco. <laughs> I want to point out one other guest here tonight, and that's Jim Hormel. Uh, Jim Hormel was the first openly gay ambassador, uh, for the United States who went through a great deal of travail to stand up and get appointed to that position. And I know you and he have worked together, so I don't know if you want to say any words about what he went through and
1: what happened. No, I mean, and, and we worked together and I was very pleased that this really happened and Jim represented our country very well. Very important step forward. So it's good to see you again, Jim.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we love Jim here at the Commonwealth Club, another one of our wonderful board members. Um, You are uh, currently part of a large group of former officials uh, who are opposing the declaration of a state of emergency at our southern border. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well... First of all, I do think there's a general sense about how the executive branch uses its power in terms of declaring emergencies. Um, There are genuine emergencies, but this is not a point that needs in in ways to just be tossed out there. Um, One of the things that, as I studied what authoritarian leaders do, um, is to use the fear factor to create power for themselves. Um, And I think that as part of it. I also do think, I am a refugee, and so I, I really do think that um, this country has thrived by being a country that welcomes people who need to be here or want to be here. And, um, and I am opposed to the kind of things that are being said and done that are clearly un-American. And I have to tell you, most recently, and obviously one of the issues has been separating children um, from their families, and, and it 's that I consider just the way it 's been done as outrageous and unAmerican, but just to prove that it hasn 't affected everybody uh, in terms of their humanity. and so um, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a train from New York from Washington to New York on Amtrak, and it was just during spring vacations and so the, the conductor, in a very calm voice, said, "The train is going to be very full today." And I would ask people that are on the train to please sit together because we have a lot of families getting on the plane and we should not separate the children from their families. And he said it in such a way that gave me faith, but also very calmly. And it was, uh, I'm not sure, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, But I think it was very meaningful in terms of people understanding what they need to do. I think the um, people do not leave their countries voluntarily. Um, I think mostly people want to live in the countries where they were born because they have relatives and the language. But the part that is, I don't even know what the right noun is, stupid, that um, (laughs) basically... Uh, If you look at where the people are coming from in Central America, for this administration all of a sudden to cut off assistance to the Northern Triangle so that people people would want to live if they could make a living there, and all of a sudden our policy to go back to my toolbox, foreign assistance is a tool. And to cut it off, it just undermines the whole process. So it's made it much, much more complicated. Um, I have spent a lot of time recently, obviously, talking about Venezuela and Colombia, and the same thing in terms of the number of people that need to leave because they're starving. And so I just consider it un American. And I, it was very, uh, I, I wish we hadn't had to have had so many officials say, um, how this is uh, using that emergency power, and one has to be careful um, in terms of, of using emergency powers this way.
0: Yeah. Kim Jong Un and President Trump. What? Kim Jong Un and President Trump. <laughs> well, comment,
1: please. Comment. Uh, Well, let me just say, I went in my list as I talk about who's what kind of leaders. I'm often asked, um, you know, whether there really is a fascist leader out there, and Kim Jong-un is is the one that I would name. Because if, first of all, it's difficult to define fascism. You know, it's a term that's thrown around a lot. Anybody you disagree with is a fascist. Um, And um, then also, I always talk about the teenage boy that whose father doesn't allow him to drive, and so the father's a fascist. And so I tried to define fascism, and fascism is not an ideology. It's a process for taking power, and what it does is to a leader who identifies himself with one tribal group as the epitome of what the nation is, at the expense of another, um, that then becomes not only um, separated but also um, the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. Somebody who also thinks that he's—by the way, these are all—he's above uh, <laughs> uh, above the uh, the law. Who um, thinks that the press is the enemy of the people. Um, and who is willing to use violence to get his way. And the only person that really fits all of that is Kim Jong-un, uh, because what is going on in North Korea um, is really, he uses violence, he's killed his relatives, any number of things. By the way, in the pictures that you showed, I was meeting with his father. I, uh, I the saw pictures, that. however, prove something else, which is I used to say when I was ambassador and secretary of state that I was eating for my country. Um, and so I gained a lot of weight, mainly because uh, when you are the United States and a woman, and you're sitting next to the head of state, and you're trying to move the food around the plate and not eat it, they'd say, why aren't you eating our national whatever, and so I had to pull it all together, uh, but anyway, I, uh, until recently, was the highest level official to meet with a Korean head. I met with his father, and um, and I think that we don't exactly know how to deal with North Korea in a lot of different ways. Uh, we had begun our... By the way, the, the intelligence department, uh, intelligence agencies knew very little about the father. Um, I was told that he was crazy and a pervert. And so I called the president of South Korea, Kim Dae-jung, at the time, and he said, you know, he's a smart man, you have to deal with him. Uh, but we were um, at a press conference... Um, and I'm standing next to him, and we're the same height. And um, I had on high heels, and his, so did he. His hair. But his hair was much poofier than mine. Um, so, but But I do take complete responsibility for Dennis Rodman, because the only thing that we did know was that Kim Jong-il liked basketball. So I took over a basketball autograph by Michael Jordan, and it was in their holy of holies. But um, I do think that Kim Jong-un is playing off of Trump in many different ways in terms of the flattery um, and a number of other things. I also, back to the toolbox, diplomacy has to be prepared. Um, I do think it is often important to have a head, head of state, head of state meetings, but there needs to be some preparation Um, and I was asked what I thought about the Singapore summit, and I was asked whether it was a a win-win or a Kim win. It was a Kim win. Um, And I think we canceled some of our exercises with our allies, um, and we got nothing in return for it. I don't know what happened at the Hanoi summit. There's some discussion about some additional ones, but I don't see that uh, we are getting what we need, which is verification.
0: Secretary Albright, I know you have to catch a plane. I would love for us to continue talking. Yep. We'll ask you to come back again soon to visit Katie, but also to yep. come to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much for your service. Yes. Keep, thank you. Keep it and going. thank you
1: again for the honor. Thank you thank for you. your service thank to the country.
0: You. Here is recipient John Hope Bryant in conversation with Jed York. John Hope Bryant is an entrepreneur, author, advisor, and empowerment leader. He is founder, chairman, and CEO of Operation Hope, the first nonprofit social investment bank in the United States. He is also founder of the Bryant Group Companies and the Promise Homes Company, the largest for-profit, minority-controlled institutional quality owners of single-family rental homes in the United States. He is co-founder of Global Dignity, an international nonprofit striving for the dignity of all people worldwide. Bryant served as chairman on President Obama's Advisory Council on Financial Capability and as vice chairman of President Bush's Council on Financial Literacy. Influenced by his upbringing in Compton, California, and spurred by the 1992 Los Angeles race riots, Bryant's goal has been to bridge the gap between minority communities and mainstream financial resources and to foster conversation around financial dignity and economic empowerment. He is one of the top-selling African-American business authors in the country, and his powerful speeches and activism continue to inspire countless people.
2: Congratulations on being a distinguished
3: citizen. Congratulations on being a really cool dude.
2: <laughs> that's on my wife.
3: Yeah, well, that's, I agree. Well, let's, let's by, by the way, our newest Operation Hope Global board member, uh, Jed, you are uh, uh, just uh, first t- the first time I get to say it is today.
2: Thank you. We have to start with your first business. It's, it's the first thing that I heard out of your mouth when I saw you on stage. You have to walk through it. It's just the best story.
3: Um, first of all, honored to be here. Um, and t- no greater title than Citizen. We all can do that. Um, I'll give you a bit of background on that story before I tell you the story. So I grew up in in South Central LA in Compton. My mother and father, uh, amazing individuals, grew up in the South. They divorced when I was five uh, over money. So the first death I saw was the death of a marriage. We owned a lot of assets, but we lost them all because my dad could make it but couldn't keep it. So the more money we made, the broker we got. My mother left to go uh, live in Compton, California, where I moved with her. Um, When I was on the way to Compton, uh, we had to stay at a relative's house. Um, My uncle, I called him. Uh, He saved my life. I was swallowing my tongue, and he literally saved my life. And um, he was hit by, uh, what I was told, a drunk driver when I was seven. And I was on the, the porch, and I saw him get killed. So I believe what everybody told me, which was that was a drunk driver. I learned later, if they didn't want to traumatize me, that my uncle was selling drugs in another neighborhood to make him extra money. He was not very good at selling drugs and didn't understand turf, was in the wrong neighborhood, came back to our neighborhood. They followed him back, and they ran him down and killed him. And it was also over money. And the third story, Jed, was... Uh, uh, when I was nine years old, my best friend George—and we're going to need a, a funny story after all this to lighten this up. My my best friend George, uh, who was smarter than me, he was an A student. I was a C student. By the way, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. got a C minus in public speaking from Crozier Seminary, <laughs> and was told if he didn't stop talking like that, he would never amount to anything. Uh, I want to take a minute to commend and thank Bank of the West, who's here. Also, First Republic Bank, who's here. I love that my partners are supporting the Commonwealth Club. So, thank you very much. Um, so, I'm Jed, I'm nine years old, and I want to be like George, but George didn't know who he wanted to be like. So, he started to, because he didn't have a, fa- a family support system like you and I did. So, George wanted to be like my next door neighbor, Tweet. Well, Tweet was a local gangster. So, he started hanging out like Tweet, talking like Tweet, walking like Tweet. And got shot and killed like tweet. So, so this is three deaths before I was 10 years old. Um, so I, I wanted to get out. I wanted to figure out why are my friends dying and why, why are these brilliant people not thriving? And I described, I def- decided it was poverty. So, you know, coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And I went to school and I was in a, this is part of the story that you know. And I went to home economics class, which doesn't exist anymore. And they, because of a, a law called the Community Reinvestment Act, a banker was forced to come into my classroom and teach me financial literacy in 1977, first year of the, of the law. This banker happened to be uh, white with a blue suit. I can remember him like today, 6'2", blue suit, white shirt, red tie. And he didn't really want to be there. You could tell from his attitude he didn't want to be there. And I was like seeing it's like seeing a Martian because I never saw a white man with a suit in Compton, California, unless he was a detective. And it was a really bad suit. And I don't mean like a bad suit. I mean, like a bad suit, like polyester and the whole thing. This guy was smooth like you. He wasn't running after anybody. He wasn't nobody was chasing him. He was just sitting there like chilling. I don't need to translate tri- chilling. And I was like, like, what do you do for a living? And how would you get rich legally? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, and this is by the second session, he sort of relaxed. And he real, he said, "Like, you know, you're just like my kids, my kids. You're just in, in this neighborhood, but you have a lot in common with my kids. And he started to not resent being there and start relating to us. We started to not resent that he was wasting our time and relating to him. And I was just like fascinated with this guy. So I asked that question, which I was very serious about. And he said, young man, I'm a banker and I finance entrepreneurs. I said, I don't know what an entrepreneur is, but if you're financing them, I'm going to be one. (laughs) And all the endorphins, yet in the right side of my brain where hope lives, that's where hope and faith and confidence and belief and joy, all those endorphins kicked. Now, this is a really important point. Because if you grew up in the hood, the, the inner cities, you basically have been deadened on the right side of your brain. It's almost like permanent PTSD because of the environment that you're dealing with. So you don't you never get to the logic side of your brain where 401ks are discussed, where two plus two equals four, all that rational stuff. Poverty is not physical beyond sustenance poverty, roof over your head, food on the table. Poverty, most poverty is mental. And psychological and spiritual it's how you feel about yourself. So when so the, when my brain kicked on the right side with with dreaming it was like the lights came on. Okay. So I opened up the dictionary the word entrepreneur cuz I never heard it before my whole life. Create something from nothing. Then I said for what purpose? To become a philanthropist or to get back to my community. I was called a philanthropist. So I had some work to do. So I looked at my neighborhood Jed, through a different lens. And I saw a liquor store selling candy for the first time. He'd been there all the time. But I, I saw a businessman at, at, at the corner named Mr. Mac, Mac's liquor store, selling candy. So I, ca- I walked up to the liquor store, and I said, Mr. Mac, you're selling the wrong kind of candy. He said, go away, little boy. I've got a college degree. I said, that's nice. I've got cavities. <laughs> so he said, you're a spunky young man, a lot of self-esteem. I want you to sell candy on my front counter. No, I don't want to do that. That's the best job I got. I don't want that job. What job do you want? I want to be a box boy. He's the worst job I've got. That's the one I want. And Jed, I did that for three weeks and quit. So when you go to a store and you open up the cooler and you may see somebody startle you from behind as they're pushing bottles or whatever up front, that's what was my job. So that was the worst job you could have. But that's what I wanted. That's where you found the boxes for inventory. And on the box was where he bought it from. And on the box and in the box was a inventory list that showed you the wholesale rate and the retail rate and showed you the the source of his profits. I quit, went home to my mother, asked her for 40 bucks. She said, life is tough. I'll give you a loan uh, and you'll pay me back. And I went to Iris food store in smart and final, which is where he bought the, his candy it was on the side of the box. Um, I got enough inventory, came home, set up the neighbor candy house in my front. Then, I was on the way to school. He wasn't. And I was selling the candy my my friends wanted. He uh, he didn't. And uh, I, well, I found girls and lost the business the first time. But uh, I made $300 a week when I was 10 years old. And I put the liquor store out of the candy business. Now, the question really is, what do you think that did to my self-esteem? Think about that. 10 years old. Put the liquor store out of the candy business, self-esteem through the roof, confidence through the roof. My role models changed. And what do I know today, Jed, is if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th. So that changed everything in my life and essentially set me on the course to be what I am today, which is an entrepreneur. And I I mentioned George's name, who was killed. Uh, I talk about my uncle, who was killed, uh, because if I don't, nobody else will. So I am their living memory. Now, they were much smarter than me, but they didn't get the shot that we have sitting up here. So I think that today the issue is the invisible class. It's not black people or white people or brown people. Or it's it's the invisible people who just don't see, don't feel like they're seen. And that creates a lot of frustration and pain and suffering in the world.
2: Like I said, I don't want to get in his way because I'm, I'm not going to talk a lot. I'm just going to let John. Know.
3: No, my next answer will be shorter. <laughs>
2: what What I love is a 9 10 year old can figure out a business without having any practice without having people around him to show him what that means now as an adult that's been very successful talk about what you see with financial literacy talk about you know your philosophy of helping communities and how you're building them up because I mean when you see it like it just makes so much sense but you have so much data to prove what you're doing is working. Walk us through Operation Hope and and some of the other things that you've been doing and just sort of poverty in general.
3: So I think we have a lot of well-intentioned people who are digging in the wrong holes. Um, We don't understand poverty, um, so you can't solve it. And we focus on things that are pain points, and we've made the urgent the important. We replace the important for the urgent. That's what, that's, by the way, that's what Washington, D.C. does. Uh, you go there because something's important, but you end up doing every day the thing that's urgent. So the urgent replaces the important and you never get around to doing it. So that, and the magic of a Dr. King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr., was he made the important feel urgent, which is marketing. So first point, poverty. Um, poverty is not financial. Neither is wealth. Once you get beyond sustenance poverty, here's poverty. Low self-esteem and lack of confidence in yourself. So if you don't know who you are by nine in the morning, by dinner time, somebody's gonna tell you who you are. My mother told me she loved me every day of my life. So I never had a self-esteem problem. I was broke, but I wasn't poor. There's a difference between being broke and being poor. Being broke is economic, but being poor is a disabling frame of mind, a depressed condition of your spirit. You must vow never to be poor again. My mother, your mother, they told us that we were somebody. They loved us. That's why you and I can look each other in the eye right now without turning away. That's self-esteem and confidence. Um, The second part of poverty is crappy role models in a crappy environment. So if you grew up in a neighborhood and all you see as symbols of success are rap stars, athletes, and drug dealers, why are we surprised the kids grew up wanting to be a rap star, an athlete, or a drug dealer. You're modeling what you see. It's common sense. An environment, as I said earlier, if you hang around nine broke people, you'll be the 10th. You model what you see. And then the third part of poverty is aspiration and opportunity. Aspiration is a cold word for hope. The most dangerous person in the world is a person with no hope. You think about the two groups in this country that are catching hell financially right now. The two groups that have, have basically have not been able to get economically off the floor. Native American Indians, who were here first, not black people, African Americans. Why do I differentiate? My Caribbean brothers are doing just fine. Uh, my African brothers who come here and sisters are actually doing just fine. It's African Americans in Boston. The poverty, the net worth of Caribbean Americans is thirteen hundred bucks, which is still really low. But the net worth of African Americans in Boston is seven bucks. So if it was just race, which is bad enough, those numbers should be the same. It should either be 7 bucks or, or $1,300. they are different. Because what got crushed for African-Americans because of slavery and because it got crushed for Native Americans because of, we all know, what happened in this country, is their self-esteem and your confidence was destroyed. Your spirit was destroyed. What do you, you can't do anything in this world without confidence and self-esteem and a spirit. You can't operate, not as a leader. So crappy self-esteem, crappy confidence, crappy role models, crappy environment, no hope, which means you never leave your porch. Wealth is the opposite, high self-esteem and high confidence, great role models and enabling environment. Optimism, you see the glasses half full and not half empty, same glass, which means you think you can, You can. see opportunity everywhere. So you combine that, Jed, with I mentioned this briefly in my remarks, so I won't go into deep detail about it. The untold story of Frederick Douglass and, and Abraham Lincoln, who created a bank after the Civil War called the Freedmen's Bank, chartered to teach free slaves about money. And he was killed the next month. So Abraham Lincoln thought the most important thing he'd do was to basically teach financial literacy to a group of former slaves. He offered them not a not a welfare program. He offered them 40 acres and a mule. Well, 40 acres, they worked that land so hard, they awarded them a mule. The next month, they created a bank for savings, investment, capital, uh, capital access and education about free enterprise and he gets killed the fourth month. Those were three, those were four months in 1865. So it's not like black folks got the memo on free enterprise, capitalism, ownership, opportunity, entrepreneurship, and screwed it up. We just never got the memo. Is this clear? So here comes Dr. King, not a banker, not a businessman, not an investment banker, not, not an industrialist, not here comes Dr. King, a preacher, God bless him who comes in 68, the first black man to talk about money to black people in 150 years since slavery. And what do we expect from a preacher if not a doctrine of compassion? So he talks about the redistribution of wealth of the top 3%. He gets killed before his first march. Again, not like we got the memo and screwed it up. That's 68. We never got the memo. So now you fast forward to today, the and we're, there's a mystery about why poor people stay poor. And I'm wondering why we're wondering. Am I talking to myself or do you get this? All I'm doing, Jed, is reversing that with, with technology. I don't even think this is racial. I think that racism exists. but And when when white folks have a headache, black folks have pneumonia. But we're all sick. This election that we just went through, those were poor white brothers and sisters in flyover states who didn't think anybody's seen them in 60 years since the industrial revolution began to leave their little small towns with jobs and economic prosperity. And they feel rightly or wrongly that other people are replacing them and that they don't have a voice. And whether you believe it, whether you like it or not, this guy hit a nerve with them and became their spokesman. That's it. That's it. And, and so some people riot in the streets in Oakland or south central because black folks we are emotional people. Some folks riot at the ballot box it 's still rioting it 's fear it 's not a solution i 'm just angry and i 'm going to lash out in some way now. emotional decisions are really bad ones unless you 're just talking about love, but it, emotional decision in business is not is not a good decision so you've got to be you've got to respond, not react. We decided to respond to this crisis, urban and rural by mapping it out with data. And what we found is that every problem in America is in a 500 credit score neighborhood. We mapped out every zip code in America. And I've, we found literally, with, with a 1% margin of error, that every problem in America, black, white, red, brown, yellow, urban, rural, is in a 500 credit score neighborhood. Period. Your dropout rates through the roof. Your homicide rates compressed through the roofs. By the way, don't trust me on any of this. Go do your own research. Low levels of of higher education attainment, low levels of small business startups, low levels of entrepreneurship, high levels of drugs, high levels of homicide, high levels of depression. So let me visualize this for you. Here's what you see in a uh, black and brown urban. Think about Oakland or wherever you want to think about uh, uh, so-called poor neighborhood. By the way, think about a white rural neighborhood at the same time. Here's what you see. A check casher, next to a payday loan lender, next to a rent-to-own store, renting furniture, next to a pawn shop, next to a title lender store, for your car, next to a, if I said a liquor store already, liquor store, make you forget about your problems, and a church down the street trying to make it feel a little bit better once a week, that's called a therapist. I'm, I'm not kidding. Challenge me on it. Isn't that what you see? And these businesses are preying on people. This is behavioral economics. They're preying on poor neighborhoods without financial literacy, without confidence, without self-esteem. Everything I mentioned a moment ago, what do you have stability? A 700 credit score neighborhood. You've never seen a riot in a 700 credit credit score neighborhood in all of America's history of any race. Credit score neighborhoods don't riot. They go shopping.
2: (laughs) But, but I mean, walk walk through how you look at that 500 credit score neighborhood neighborhood. And through financial literacy, through investment, how you're going from 500 to 700.
3: So the great news is the rest of this is really quick. So all that was sort of very deep backstory. I didn't bore you, did I? No. So that that was all deep backstory. So here, so Jed, here is real quick, real quick. Again, diversity shouldn't be talked about from a moral perspective. The largest economy in the world per capita is the United States of America. Well, period, and per capita, the most diverse place in the world. Is America. Okay, that, that, you're not impressed by that. Fine. The two most economically prosperous states in America are?
0: New York and California. California.
3: The two most ethnically diverse places in America are? New, New York and California. California. The poorest state in America. By the way, two highest credit score states in America. New York, York. and California. California. And the lowest credit score state in America is Mississippi. And by the way, Alabama and all, you can predict it. It's, they, they, they stack up. You cannot segregate your heart and integrate your pocket. It's mathematically impossible. So diversity is a business trend. There's nothing to do with the moral. The, the, that's between you and God. I'm just telling you that this is just smart economics. It's like smart to, to hire women. It's like smart to do business with minorities. It's like you, you can't do business with people who don't respect or understand. So we have found that nothing changes your life more than God or love than moving your credit score 120 points. <laughs> <laughs> if I can move your credit score 120 points, it'll change everything in your life. You can't get a job today without them checking your credit. Here's one for you. Half of African-Americans, not poor people. I'm talking about educated black folks with suits, ties, and advanced degrees. Half of black folks have a credit score below 620. We never got the memo. So (laughs) there's no generational wealth. Where do we get it from? Who who is the entrepreneur? Where are we we getting this, this well of opportunity from? It's what we don't know that we don't know that's killing us, but we think we know. But wait a minute. That means half of black folks don't have access to capital. You can't get a small business loan at 600 credit score. It's, it's risky credit. You can't get a decent mortgage. So, those who, who make the lease pay the. No. So, now you've locked people into this poverty role. And now, of course, they're frustrated and upset because they think I'm working hard, I'm playing by the rules, I'm paying the taxes, I'm doing everything that society told me to do, and I'm not winning. What's the magic of, of California? Work hard, play by the rules, do the right thing, stop at the red lights, respect your elders, and, and it'll pay off in a reasonable shot of success or failure in your own merit. That's the American dream, too. But when it's not working for people, they begin to become agitated. So my mission is to drop down walls, bring back bridges, raise up free enterprise that works for all of God's children, raise GDP. I don't want you to help me because I'm helping poor people. I want you to help me because it's helping yourself. Because we're creating customers at the, at the banks we work with. We're getting the bank out of the no business and back into the yes business because the bank, by law, has to take every application that comes to the front door. But when you have a five or eighty credit score, they know day one they can't approve you but can't say anything for fear of being sued. My coach sits next to the banker in this example, looks over and says, can we talk to her? Yes. Girlfriend, that credit report was like a bus accident. You'll never get approved. We don't. We don't work for the bank. We work for Operation Hope. Can we help you with that? Sure. What's that? That's an error. Can we? What's that? I don't know what that is. That's an error. Can we challenge that to the credit bureaus? I'm talking real fast. I don't have any time. What, why? Why is that important? Because the law states silver rights. The law states if credit bureaus can't confirm that that's yours within thirty days, they must remove it. That's a forty point pop in your credit score. Let me ask you a question. You had a five eighty credit score. We just popped you to, to six twenty. What happens to your self esteem? Your belief, your trust in the banking system, your confidence. And then we, by the way, we get you to 680, then we get you to 7, 690. All of a sudden, the bank, you're not a black customer anymore. You're not a Latino customer anymore. I mean, we did this in, what, 30 minutes? I mean, that's it. I mean, I, we can talk more and more, but that's, that will change America. By the way, that will change the world. The best way to stop a bullet is a job. We need role models now that are entrepreneurs and business people and job creators at scale. I can't scale LeBron. I love LeBron. It's not scalable. I can't scale my friend Oprah Winfrey. I can't scale. Help me out here. Entertainers and athletes. Uh, I got Stephen Curry. I can't scale Stephen Curry. Right? Maybe he's got 100 employees in Steph Curry Enterprise. It's fantastic. But I'm trying to create jobs for 50 million people. So you have the Jewish model where they were oppressed, right? But They, they got education, capital access. They're now trying to go after, in America, you have 7.5 million Jews going after 150 million jobs. That's the right supply and demand formula. You got 40, 50 million black people trying to be 500 rap stars. I'm, I'm serious now. 450 NBA stars. I'm dead serious. 500 NFL stars who have a career path of three and a half years before they get injured. God, we better hope they get, uh, they work for, for Jed because he's actually concerned about their future. And he's, you know, hang around him, you will get rich. And, but, and you got, I don't know, maybe in the, maybe in the music entertainment business, it's 5,000 jobs. You got 50 million people trying to go out to 5,000, 10,000 jobs. It's mathematically impossible. No one's talking in this way about the data. That's my only point. I'm going to finish what Lincoln started. We're going to drive this with data. We're going to create a whole new generation of small business owners, entrepreneurs, startups, shoot-ups, success stories, people with confidence and belief and in, in faith in themselves. And we're going to set at liberty those who have been oppressed. And we're going to use the free enterprise system to do it. And I'm going to do it right now.
2: I, I, I hate to end because... He's just such an inspirational guy, and there's so much work that can be done. But you can see, like it's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, it's it's just simple supply and demand. It's simple economics. The
3: guy who made this suit, we put we put in business. He's doing a million three a year. We gave him a thirty five thousand dollars loan, raised his credit score to seven hundred. I don't I don't give him charity every year. I gave him a hand up and a fishing pole. Believed in him. He believed in himself. By the way, that was a decade ago. He's doing a million six every year for 10 years. You do the math. Six employees, raising his children, paying his taxes, started a nonprofit to pay it forward. We have 4 million clients. We directed $3 billion in capital to inner cities. And we we have like 300 employees. I really believe we become the Starbucks of financial inclusion, Jed. And And we finished what Abraham Lincoln started by putting these offices within reach. And by the way, the 49ers Foundation, the 49ers are starting an office in San Francisco. Please give them some love uh, for Hope Inside and Operation Hope. Um,
2: but, but we see it in San Francisco. And, yeah. I mean, I think most folks in the room are from San Francisco or from the Bay Area. And, and you see the disparity of wealth here. And there's no reason that we should have 10,000 homeless people on these streets. There's no reason that there should be needles on the street. Like This is such a beautiful city. And you have too many people that are just just in pain and suffering, and that's where I hope with our partnership, I hope the brand of the 49ers and, and the unbelievable work that Operation Hope does, I hope that collectively we can make a difference in the Bay Area. And again, if you can do it here in one of the most expensive places in the world, we can do it where I'm from in Youngstown, Ohio. We, we can do it in other places, and that's, that's the goal. That's the model, and, and I hope that, that folks will continue to, to look at this model and look at, at a partnership and figure out how do, we, how do we continue to help folks to help themselves.
3: So when Jad came on our board, the NFL commissioner said, well, I want to see every other NFL team model what they're doing. So they gave us a, a big grant in NFL, and Jad's matching it here. Henry Ford III came on our board. Now the, now the motorsports company and the, the auto companies wants to help us. We, we're about, we're about to announce AT&T. We're going in AT&T to do this for their workplace, for their call center employees. We're at Delta Airlines for their call center employees because they're living from paycheck to paycheck. We're in UPS for their employees because these drivers are living from paycheck to paycheck. We're in 40 banks. We're in hospitals. We're in police departments. But, but you talk about paycheck to paycheck.
2: Yeah. The paychecks that we write to our players are fairly large paychecks. And – in our last collective bargaining agreement it was estimated that probably 75% of our players would have no money 3 to 6 months into a lockout that that's insane and these are guys like minimum salary like the lowest minimum salary that you can have is $280,000 and that's first year rookies you know the minimum salary if you've been in the league for more than 4 years is $880,000 a year so, I mean, again, it's not about – again, when you talk about wealth, when you talk about you know, being poor, like th- there is a mindset. And if you don't understand right. what to do with money, if you don't understand how to take care of yourself and to save and to you know, figure out how to build and grow that business – I mean, and that's what I love about Steph. That's what I love about yeah. Magic. That's what I love about LeBron. Grand Hill. I mean, these guys, not only did they make it on the court, but you watch what they're doing Their off the court – and that's where you hope that, you know, there's very little chance that you're going to be hitting three pointers from 30 feet out like Steph. But you can look at what he's done from a business standpoint, and you can look at what a lot of the Warriors have done and figure out all right, I might not be you on the court, but I can be you off the court. Amen. I'm honored to be on your board. I'm honored to be your friend. I'm honored that you're here. And um, let's give John one more big round of applause.
0: is recipient suzanne DiBianca bianca of salesforce in conversation with michelle Miao? salesforce is a pioneer in the technology of cloud computing the concept of software as a service and integrated corporate philanthropy guided by the vision of founder and ceo mark benioff salesforce develops applications that don't require an it person's expertise for businesses of all kinds Salesforce has had positive impacts in the Bay Area and beyond through a commitment to sustainability operating as a net-zero carbon emissions company. They also provide technology, community engagement, and strategic grants to local nonprofits through Salesforce.org. Salesforce is the first recipient of the Commonwealth Club's Distinguished Corporate Citizen Award. Accepting on behalf of the company is Suzanne DiBianca, Executive Vice President of Corporate Relations and Chief Philanthropy Officer. And she's the co founder and former president of the Salesforce Foundation and Salesforce.org. Suzanne initiated the company's one to one to one model of corporate philanthropy and is responsible for their stakeholder strategy, which includes corporate giving, community relations, and sustainability. Under her guidance, Salesforce continues to lead in the realm of corporate philanthropy, sustainability efforts, and corporate social responsibility. Hello, hello, hello!
4: Look at this. We're all out on a Friday night after eight o'clock. This works. <laughs> So Suzanne, we heard earlier, I mean, the phenomenal amount of work that you've done for this great global company Salesforce and this idea of this one-to-one to one, you know, program that over eighty companies have adopted. But I think in order to get to this position of this dream job to do something like corporate giving, to be able to give back to the community and and, and work for this great company, you had to have walk this journey in, in discovering yourself as an incredibly caring person in order to have this perspective of, I know how to direct, you know, company funds, I know how to create community. So let's hear it from you. And what was that journey prior to getting into this position and finding that heart of yours and understanding what it means to give back?
5: Okay, so first of all, I just want to thank you, like, for actually, first of all, I want to apologize for being Friday Night Entertainment. Right. Yeah. And we sort of agreed, no personal questions, but then Michelle sort of decided to go right, yeah. go right Well, there.
4: Well, no, 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 not, not so, not so, so
5: much personal. Yeah. But it's that fine. moment in which you're like,
4: hey, I know what it means to care.
5: Right. Like, yeah. So my mom ran the juvenile justice department for the state of New Jersey, and we were the homestay family for many kids on the weekends. So... I think at an early age I sort of got a good perspective of what it meant to live with and be with people that weren't like me. And um I was the minor- I grew up in a sort of a wealthyish town in Princeton, New Jersey and then was like smacked into Atlantic City High School which I was the minority. Um 70% black, 20% Puerto Rican, 10% other and it was an awesome t- like it was really hard but it was awesome to be an other for um that part of my life and but I guess I just grew up with like good Christian values, good hardworking parents and sort of committed to a life of service. So it's never about it's not about me. Salesforce has been on this awesome journey. I just got lucky in this job.
4: When you think about corporate giving, I think a lot of people what comes to mind is this idea that you're gonna give back to youths, you're gonna give back to education, you're gonna give back to people. Uh one of the things that you've been tasked with is giving back to the environment and taking this global company and really thinking about like sustainability. So when they told me like, okay, not only is she responsible for giving back to our community, but she's also been tasked with, you know, thinking about how we do business and giving back to our environment. I mean, somebody has to think about that, right? Right. Let's talk about that sustainability program because over 20 years, here's where we're at now in 2019 is that part of your job is really thinking about this global company and and your 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 environmental footprint?
5: Yeah, so I think what I would say about that is that we have eleven years, like we actually have eleven years as a humanity, to to try to get to do our best effort to get to a one point five degree warming, which is in and of itself slightly catastrophous. We, we, then we have, um, so it's, it's a very, uh, short period of time. We have to act. I have two kids. I was never actually a really big environmentalist. I was always sort of a social justice, um, with particularly with sort of underserved youth person. And then I kind of looked at all the issues that I care about. And then I realized they're actually only going to get worse if the climate changes in the way that we think it's going to change. And so I kind of pivoted two years ago. I think it's, I think growing inequality and climate change are the two macro issues that this generation faces. And I'm inspired. I was with the the girl. She was 16 years old. Has, Has anyone here heard of Greta Thunberg? Yeah, right. Amazing. She's a climate activist from Sweden. She's 15 years old. She has Asperger's. And she has been protesting school every Friday for the last two years. And she's made massive change in policy and in law in Sweden. And I met the U.S. equivalent two days ago in New York City. And she had to change schools, actually, because her school wasn't supportive of her not showing up every Friday. <sighs> Shocker. Um, <laughs> but she now goes to this, like, great school in New York. And she does. She goes to the U.N. headquarters every Friday. And she protests. And she says, why is this not on the front page of every paper all the time. And I just kind of just every time I meet a young person, I feel, I feel a level of responsibility um, for working on this issue for the next half of my career. So when you look at the Salesforce tower, just know that it is the most sustainable building uh, in North America of its size It has a black water system in it that recycles 85% of the water. If you look at the floors, they're made out of recycled fishing nets. Like We were super intentional. We didn't have to do any of that in the tower. But even though it's a giant building in San Francisco, it has one of the lightest footprints. So that's just one example of... How we're trying to mobilize the company and because the last thing that I would say is it has to do with people like Hubert Ban who is in the corner of the room who's awesome and amazing who's in our finance and accounting department and they, the leadership in our company is amazing and he's been an incredible partner with us. We now report all of our carbon in a really transparent way on our 10K. He won the gold standard accounting award from Prince Charles this year. It's all about the people in our company that step up in their roles to make a difference. And I just have the honor of being able to hold a flag for them. So it's all about people like Hubert. So thank you. This
4: idea of like corporate social responsibility, I think we understand it from a technical definition. I'd love to hear from you just you know, what does that mean? What does it mean to be like responsible or socially responsible?
5: Yeah. I I think it's about purpose. I don't think it's about responsibility. I think it's about being driven by purpose, being a person of service, thinking about more than yourself, thinking about how do you serve other people? Just so many people are super narcissistic, and we have a generation of um, people that are kind of living in the social age. And I just I keep coming back to it's it's about it's not about responsibility, it's not about branding, it's not about marketing, it's not about bells and whistles. It's about doing the work every day, and it's about um, being driven by purpose, and about being grateful, and it's about humility. And
4: yeah, thank you. Yeah. But my question is really, you know, onto a much more serious note, you mentioned it earlier, the Equality Act, which means so much. It means so much to a lot of us, but especially the LGBTQ community. And to be honest with you, as a non-tech person, I had no idea, you know, what Salesforce does, like something up in the cloud or whatever. But what I did know first is that they have an equality team. And they do all this work in the community to be as like inclusive as possible. So for someone in your position, and I think that one of the beautiful things about this huge global tech company is that they have driven inside of their corporate mission, but also the workplace culture to be
5: as inclusive as possible and to actually show how to care. Yeah, I think that again, like it's not about what you say, it's about what you do. And it is about showing up with purpose and it's about hiring people that are different. And it is about giving opportunity to people that deserve it. And it is about just kind of rolling up your sleeves and doing the work that matters, whether it's in Georgia, um, which is legislation that we fought for for the RIFRA Act, which was prior to what happened today with the Equality Act. And if if you don't know, we now have national legislation that protects LGBT and Q so that so that these states don't have to pop up like a whack a mole kind of mm-hmm. thing. So it's amazing. And I think we're we're just inspired by people and bringing their whole self to work. And another even one of our amazing executives, Sarah Franklin, is sitting right there. And you can like, wave. hey, Sarah. So yay, Sarah. So Sarah runs our Trailblazer Initiative, which is about equal opportunity. And we have stories that she and I share together. I have so much fun working with Sarah because we get to work with these amazing people that used to be coal miners. And I've been shutting down coal mines very intentionally. Sorry. <laughs> We're now sort of like what happens to people that have families that need to eat and provide shelter. And so we have built this free learning platform. Sarah has built this free learning platform that is an enabler for people to get new skills and new jobs and McKinsey I know sorry for to the KPMG people in the room but McKinsey did an amazing study last year which said that it could be that up to 800 million people 800 million people are going to be out of jobs by 2030 due to automation like that is a kind of astounding fact right and so whether it's me shutting down coal mines or it's robotics that are taking jobs where the world is changing people are needing to be reskilled and we see this Sarah and I every day so Sarah's built this amazing learning platform that is a reskilling platform where basically you can get jobs in the Salesforce ecosystem you can be a Salesforce then they start at like $90,000 a year so i say all of that in the fact that we see the world changing Um, We're trying to be out in front of it. We're trying to be not only an equal opportunity employer, to your point, like culturally, internally, we're trying to create a better world for other people and leave a legacy that's way beyond us. So was that three minutes?
4: (laughs) Well, they say we have less than like. Two minutes left, so actually I get one more question. Thank you, thank you for all the work that you've done. I mean, in the last twenty years, I think you're part of the the I, what you can describe as a pioneer in changing of how you know corporations interact with the community in in ter- in terms of like building equity. We always talk about equity especially in a city like san francisco as far as like bringing everybody together in this great big thing that we're doing so if you could leave us with some words of equity and what it means to you and your
5: position seek out like intentionally and, and sarah and i do this all the like seek out in people that are different than you and have different experiences than you and it just makes for such a richer life like I think every single person in this room is super privileged. Just find people that need a, like a hand up or just like an attaboy or an introduction or something. And like, as it relates to equity, I just think there's a lot of people in the world that need just, um, just like a little bit of an little bit of extra love. And sometimes like you have to be super intentional about finding them and bringing them along with you. So I just invite whether you're like a mentor at Europe or you know someone whose cousin's son's girlfriend is struggling or something, but just try to like dig deep and find somebody different than you and just learn from them.
4: I'm so so thrilled to have this opportunity to speak with you Suzanne cuz you're a testament to Salesforce and their practices and their culture and just hearing you you're super down to earth and you're really connected and super humble and obviously like what that comes down to is like the core values of the company. So thank you so much for this opportunity to have this discussion. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much thank everyone. You. Thank for you for being here, for here tonight, Suzanne. <laughs>
0: Here are recipients Bill and Susan Oberndorf in conversation with Tom Larson. Susan and William Oberndorf are longtime active philanthropists giving broadly to education, healthcare, and policy related causes. The couple launched their private foundation, the Bill and Susan Oberndorf Foundation, in 2011 and have provided funds to a broad range of worthy causes. Bill is chairman of Oberndorf Enterprises, the University of San Francisco Board of Overseers, and the UCSF Foundation. He also co-founded the Alliance for School Choice, for which he serves as chairman emeritus. Susan is president of the Oberndorf Foundation and serves on numerous nonprofit boards. The pair have received praise for their fierce commitment to education reform with contributions to the Center for Education Reform, the Brighter Choice Foundation, All Children Matter, the Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice, and the Philanthropy Roundtable, among others. Concentrating the power of their philanthropy here in the Bay Area, the Oberndorfs have had tremendous impact in this region and beyond.
6: Hey, hi, uh, it's great to be here. I've, I'm really honored because I've really never met an official distinguished citizen, so this is cool. And I want you still haven't met him. <laughs> and I want to wish Andy Ash a happy birthday and thank you for celebrating your birthday here. Susan and Bill have been longtime supporters of a whole variety of philanthropy in the Bay Area, in the health, education, and in the environment, and I've been privileged firsthand to witness their energy, generosity, and uh, wisdom, first as a board member of the Bay Area Discovery Museum with Bill some 30 years ago, and then with Susan at Breakthrough Collaborative some 15 years ago, and we're very lucky to have them here. So... What does this award mean to you, Bill and Susan?
7: Just to follow up on what Susan said um, in her remarks uh, earlier this evening, this is an extraordinary institution in what it symbolizes and represents and about spreading the truth and having dialogue around the serious issues of our day. Uh, It was founded in 1903, I believe, if the math is correct, and when you, uh, my math is correct, and when you think about uh, the significance of uh, that, is uh, San Francisco was really a very young place then, to have a, a, a center for debate and discussion of really important issues, that simply could not be more important today. We have to have, we need to have, more engaged, serious dialogue, give and take about the pressing issues of our day where people are really listening to one another learning from one another uh, and uh, instead of just talking at one another
8: you know I'm, I'm very honored to get this award um, as I said earlier and um, in thinking about things that I've done throughout the years I realize it's the things that really got me out of my comfort zone that really made me grow and learn the most. And so um, this has been a wonderful opportunity to go look back on that and and share it with everybody.
6: We're going to hear more about Susan getting outside of her comfort zones later. (laughs) Uh, Bill has been the astonishingly successful chair of the UCSF Board of Overseers. How did you decide to first get involved with UCSF?
7: Well, I, I, I got involved with UCSF uh, really because of uh, Jean Robertson, who uh, was known by many people in this room. And um, Jean and her husband, Sandy, uh, had just the most wonderful way of uh, uh, bringing people together in their home and wherever they were of all ages. Uh, uh, really remarkable and were particularly generous to young people in their house it didn't matter whether the Robertsons were in their 50s, 60s, 70s or 80s was always full of young people constantly doing this so uh, Jean brought me in uh, she was Sue's fourth grade teacher <laughs> in Chicago and that's how the relationship uh, uh, began and continued she, she brought me in when she set her eyes on sights on doing something she just didn't give up and fortunately, I was one of those people that she really helped to bring along and mentor and get involved. So that's how, that's how I was fortunate enough to get involved with UCSF.
6: What's been the most interesting part of your work?
7: Well, uh, I am just uh, finishing up on my eighth year of being chair of the board. Uh, and uh, you can't do that work unless you have an engaged partner and doing it, and uh, and Sam Hoggood, who's here tonight, the chancellor of UCSF, uh, and uh, just as, as Sue is my engaged partner, Jane Hoggood is too, by the way, and uh, but uh, I, I think Sam and I together had a a vision uh, for really. Building a board uh, that would be uh, every bit as much of a board as uh, as any uh, major institution in this country, private, public, uh, where we could really help uh, serve whoever might be chancellor and help the university and really making uh, it a vital thing. And uh, one of the first things we did, and it was a little risky. I think you have to take risks in these things is we took the board from 45 people to 23 people. We downsized it. Um, uh, uh, People had the opportunity to opt in. Uh, About half of the board decided not to opt in because there were going to be real responsibilities. Uh, The time commitment was bigger, and uh, you had to really uh, view UCSF as your number one philanthropic priority. And... Uh, as a result of that, and putting in term limits and changing the governance structure, um, the uh, the annual fundraising at half the size is quadruple what it was, and uh, we are just going over five billion. Have we gone over yet, Jennifer? Not quite, but we're very close. Jennifer is, is chancellor, vice chancellor of development, uh, but uh, w- uh, we've raised very close to $5 billion, and half of that has come from our board, too. So I, I must say I, I, I really feel that when I pass the baton a year from now, uh, that uh, this will be a institution with a very vibrant, engaged board, which is really necessary uh, in in today's uh, world in, with complex uh, organizations uh, like UCSF. Yeah, and you've
6: created some great public private partnerships too, haven't you?
7: Well, I think uh, that is another aspect of UCSF that's really quite astounding um, in that. Uh, Uh, Most people don't know that only this year, only 2.1% of the budget at UCSF will come from the state of California. That's it. And uh, we have a very small student body of 3,500 students, so only 1% of our budget is tuition. And it's the big clinical enterprise um, that generates a couple hundred million dollars a year, and uh, then at philanthropy and grants, uh, but we we raised uh, 1.2 billion dollars in our fiscal year last year, and that put us fifth in the country of any university, uh, total universities, and, and we're just graduate medical, so uh, that that it, it has to be a public private partnership, uh, and um, I think you look at the the. There are just a handful of public universities, like uh, Michigan, University of Michigan. I guess you could put University of Washington in that category, and UCSF, who have really are leading the country on this, and it's going it's to be the future of public uh, university education in the country. In fact, it should be the future of all education in the country.
6: And Susan's a member of the board of the Environmental Defense Fund. How did you decide to get involved in that, Susan?
8: Uh, I, I decided to get involved in it because we all know the environment is a, a pressing issue right now for all of us. I mean, we're living right, right amongst it all with the wildfires, the fires that we've experienced over the last several years and all. And what attracted me to EDF was that they really are scientifically based, they have wonderful science research that they do themselves. Um, and the other two areas that I really like, the truthfulness. Because there was they've had a number of studies that they've done that negated their original thought. And they didn't just keep going down that path once they decided that this was not the right route, that the science proved that it was wrong, that they actually turned it around and went a whole other direction, which takes a lot for an NGO really to decide to do that. And the um, final thing about EDF that I love is really they are bipartisan. And um, I just think that that's an important part of it. I, I'm on the Oceans Committee, and I'm on the Health Committee.
6: How's Oceans Committee going?
8: Oceans Committee is is fantastic, actually. Um I'll, I'll, I'm going to tell some stories because I think it will help illustrate a little better what they do. But the red snapper population down in the Gulf of Mexico was actually declining quite rapidly. And so they started these programs with the fisheries managers, and they d- decided to you know, start with catch limits. But what happened was the uh, fishermen went out, and they were just pulling fish out, and there was tons of waste. So in 2007 EDF got together with fishermen the fisheries and the commission down there and they came up with a plan that that was scientifically based because they did a study to see exactly how many fish were in you know the, what what was happening to the fish population and what they could sustainably take out of the ocean uh, of the gulf and so they took that number that they came up with and they divided it across the fishermen and allocated it that way. Um, There was some resistance to this. And um, one of the biggest resistors was uh, now our biggest supporter because his name's Buddy. And um, he actually refused to join the group and do it. But then he saw that he was going out in storms and, and, and just pulling fish out. And he said he didn't want his kids to go in his business, even though this fish business had been in his family for, you know, many generations. And so, uh, but then he saw his friendly fishermen that were doing so much better than he was. They were making more money. They were going out less. And so he actually signed up for the program and, um, He's very happy about it. And now he he goes around and talks all over about how wonderful it was. And the good news with all this is that in 2013, that just a mere five to six years later, the red snapper population has pretty much regenerated itself. So, But I had a wonderful time because I got to go down to Galveston, Texas, and go out on the boat one day with Buddy. He took me and a few other people from EDF. We went out fishing with him. Six-foot
6: seas, right? Yeah.
8: <laughs> so we, we start off, and uh, he said, you know, well, it's not great conditions today. So we're heading out, and you have to go quite far out, actually. And we're now in like five- and six-foot swells. And he stopped, and he said, you know, what do you guys want to do? He said, And he said, if it, it, it was him, he wouldn't go out today. But we had come all the way down. So Galveston, Texas. So I said, well, we're going, right? So so we went out and we, and we went fishing. And he t- showed us the whole system because what he does is he has this uh, kind of a iPad kind of thing. And he has to input into his iPad what time he's coming in, how many people are on his boat, how many are fishing. And so he has to stick to the time that he said that he was coming back in he can't come in a minute earlier or a minute later because what they do is they spot check to make sure that all these fishermen are abiding by the rules and not catching. so um w- which was interesting but uh buddy he is he's he's a character he's kind of you know kind of like a big tough guy uh and he was quite funny when he was he stands up and drives the boat. And when you hit the waves, he, he kind of goes with the boat all the time. But um, so, uh, and, and he's kind of a tough guy, but he's really a big sweetheart on the inside. Because if you catch a fish that's a certain size, that's you know really small, you're supposed to put it back in. But Buddy takes it off the hook, and he kisses it on the lips, and then he puts it back in. <laughs> So he reached over to give me one of those, and I said, I think I'll pass, buddy. Thanks. But. So um, – and now what EDF is doing is taking it one step further and engaging technology in the whole process. And so they're doing a smart boat technology where they're putting sensors on boats that will be able to sort of, t- you know, to tell how many fish a particular fisherman's bringing in. And this has great worldwide applications – because it will no longer require that a Coast Guard maybe can come by and see what happens. And actually, the day we came in, he got spot checked. So uh, we got to see that process as well.
6: So. so what are you doing to save our health, Susan?
8: So saving the health, um, it's really on the air pollution. And um, they put uh, they decided that we would partner with Google Earth and put low-cost sensors on their cars and drive it around the city of Oakland and see where the um, air pollution was. And just to throw out some facts, there are 24 million people in this country living in detrimental air. And in elderly people, it can increase heart attacks up to 40%. So these are some serious Issues and a lot of people don't even realize they're living in those areas. Um, so we, the these cars drove around the uh, Oakland area and got quite significant amounts of data and showed that e- air pollution can vary, you know, from one end of the block to the other eight times greater or less. So we then went to Kaiser and mapped diseases like heart attacks like asthma, on top of it, and there was a direct correlation to where people live. So the beauty of this is this information is now being used by the people of Oakland at kind of a grassroots upswelling to sort of change, you know, where diesel trucks can go or whatever. So it really is empowering people with data and information.
6: Bill, he's also chair of the American Federation for Children. How did you get involved in that? Why did you do it, Bill?
7: Well, I, you know, I think everybody in this room knows that if they hadn't had the opportunity to have a quality education, nothing else would have really been possible in their lives. Uh, And um, I was very fortunate that um, my father died when I was 11, but my grandparents had set aside uh funds beginning in 1921 actually um almost 100 years ago now uh, uh to provide education for uh their uh descendants and their their grandchildren and uh as a result of that i was able to go to uh after going to four different uh public schools by 6th grade because we had moved Uh, a couple times uh, to a wonderful boys school uh, private boys school from 7th through 12th grade all the way through Williams College and Stanford Business School I had no debts and $10,000 when I graduated what a gift that was but I was just lucky but if I hadn't had that if that hadn't been there I would not have had that opportunity I would not have had the opportunity and I would not be sitting here today I would not be sitting here today. So for me it's a very personal thing because um, uh, I think choice makes a huge difference in a child's life uh, if parents are able to determine what they think is the best education for their kids.
6: What's been the impact of AFC?
7: Well, the work began really uh, 30 years ago uh, with uh, with AFC. Uh, and uh, that was in, uh, around uh, the, my, my work. Um, uh, and uh, if we go back to uh, A Nation at Risk, if anybody remembers that seminal piece in the Reagan administration that was published in 1982, it said we were a country at risk if we didn't reform our education uh, system. So think of that. That's 1982. That is fully two generations of kids now who've gone through, uh, up till age 18, a system that was not good in 1982 and is not good today. Where we rank internationally, where we rank as a state, and where we rank as a country, we are suffering the consequences of not having made vast changes. So the things we talk about, the outcomes... We talk about uh, the 1%, uh, uh, and, and we deplore certain people who hold office in this country today. But let's look at the root cause of why they're there. When economically you cannot move forward in life, you get frustrated and you get angry, and you say, we're done with the establishment. We are not going to put up with this anymore. And you go vote for somebody who is viewed as outside of the mainstream. I don't know if Madeleine Albright is having this conversation about fascism a couple floors down. But that's what happens when you have people who aren't educated. And I don't see that in the national debate we are looking at the root causes of what we're living with today. But that is, in my view, uh, not the only one, but without an education you are not going to be able to think critically, and you're not going to be able to make your way in life. So you can't do it, and we can't de-link de- de- these. Uh, I view public education as having an education, a public that is educated. That is what our money should be used as taxpayers, and parents should be empowered to be able to make the same decision – that most parents in this country make who move to a good school district because they can afford it, or write the check and send their kid to a private school. Most people, half of the people in this country, have choice. The other half don't, and they tend to be people who are poor. And their kids get assigned to schools that none of us would ever, ever, ever think of letting our children go to, which is why we didn't send them there. So I don't understand, quite frankly, why people view this as such an obstacle. Uh, And uh, I could have understood that better 25 years ago, but now I look at the facts. So we go back to what is the truth. And when you go back, and we can see now where there's there's one test given in all 50 states. It's called the National Assessment of Education Progress. It's highly regarded. Uh, It virtually doesn't change. Unlike state tests that are all 50 states give different tests, and they're very politicized, and they change every few years. So I put those aside because you can't compare them. So on the NAEP, uh, uh, it's given every two years, math and reading, fourth graders and eighth graders, and it's a cross-section. California, uh, uh, the state of Florida, was uh, at the bottom of 50 states. It was like 47 uh, for low-income kids. Today, it is number three for uh, low-income kids. It was 36 for all kids. It is 13 today. California, in 2003, was 49 out of 50 states 2017, it is 48, okay? And we've gone from 36 to 33 overall. Indiana went from 26 to number four for low-income kids and 24 overall to number six. Why did that happen? Because you had legislatures that were receptive and governors who led and said, Mediocrity is not going to be allowed here anymore. And we are going to create opportunities for poor people to have choices. And when you did that, all boats rose and it got, everything got better. So it was a trifecta, public reforms plus charters plus private school choice. You do those three things and you can move entire states. One last piece of data that is really amazing is, Miami-Dade is the fourth-largest school district in the United States of America. Today, in Miami-Dade, seven-and-a-half kids, average family income of four twenty-five thousand dollars 70% minority, go to low-tuition private schools in Miami-Dade. 17 and a half percent go to charters. 45% go to traditional public schools that are magnets, international baccalaureates, in rich curriculum, only 30% go to their neighborhood-assigned school. Miami-Dade is the number one performing urban district on the NAEP in uh, reading and number two in math. Okay? So this is 25 years of data, and uh, we live in a state right now where they're trying to shut down charter schools. This is a disgrace. An absolute disgrace, and we will bear the consequences if we don't accelerate this process of change and rolling out choice because it works, and that is the truth. We're at a place about truth today, but the facts, the figures, everything, 25 years of work, tells you that it does work.
6: But a lot of that is focusing on the problem-solving rather than the ideology, right?
7: That's right. We're just looking at facts now. We didn't have the facts 25 years ago, but, uh, you know, this is uh, somebody just won a school board seat in Los Angeles and, uh, last, and, and they want to throw charters out in L.A. And the teachers' unions throw tons of money at this. It is, a, it is a tragedy what is going on. The union doesn't really represent teachers that well, and it doesn't represent students at all.
6: Okay, back to the grassroots with Susan here. What are you doing about homelessness, learning about homelessness in San Francisco?
8: You know, you can't live in San Francisco or even visit San Francisco and not be touched by the homeless in one way, shape, or form. And um, it's a complicated problem because you're dealing with mentally ill. You're dealing with, you know, uh, drug addiction. You're dealing with some people that are just down on their luck. So I... um, would love to. We've t- turned a focus, and would like to really help out with this. But felt that we really need to educate our, you know, myself on it first. So, I first, one of the first things I did was, thanks to my friend Brenda Jewett, who's here, was go on a tour with Dell Seymour. And Dell is a Vietnam vet. He um, it, it, he was um, chronically homeless for 18 years. He was a former cocaine addict. He w- was one of the biggest drug dealers on Market Street. And 11 years ago, decided that he really, about 10, 11 years ago, they really needed to clean up his act. So he became drug-free, and this is his cause. And he likes to take people on these tours around the Tender line to show them exactly what's going on. Anybody can go, right? Anybody can go. He's got an organization called Code Tenderline that... Is an organization that trains people for job interviews, how to present themselves, how to be on time for work, all that. As a matter of fact, we were walking down the street with him, and he passes this young guy who later I find out works at Salesforce, and he said, "Hey, you promised me two jobs this this month. I want my two jobs." You know, so he's he's really out advocating for these people all the time, and the one takeaway I had from him because you don't hear this that this often that often is that he said these people don't want to be living on the streets they don't want to be drug addicts they want to work which is contrary to what we hear a lot of the time because a lot of people you know in the press or whatever say these people don't want to get off the streets that they do like being on the streets but Dell really taught me otherwise and it was a real you know that you walk around the neighborhood and he does know everybody and um, he understands the issue and problem better than anybody else. He's also on a number of homelessness sort of coordinating boards and all. So he he really is advocating for these people all the time. Um, and there's there are good things going on in the Tenderloin. You know, they St. Anthony's is down there. They have portable showers and all. And he takes you through and, and shows you all this. There's a church down there that lets them sleep in the pews during... Uh, during the afternoon hours when the church isn't in service. So, you know, the community down there is really out to help all these people.
7: Could I I just add one thing on that? Because um, uh, John Gardner, um, uh, uh, who founded Common Cause, who undoubtedly spoke at this club when he was alive, I'm sure, uh, uh, he wrote a wonderful book called On Leadership. And at the beginning of that book... He says, um, I have no doubt that we will be able to identify uh, our, uh, the issues of our times. It's a matter of whether we'll have the political resolve to deal with them. And I think homelessness is one of those where there are uh, play, a lot of good work's been done all across the country. Uh, and there are solutions to parts of this problem Uh but will we here in San Francisco have the political resolve to do what other cities have done very successfully? And, I, and it's not – this is very complex. I don't mean to make it uh, simple. But there are things that have worked that uh, there is a great resistance to doing here.
6: So, Susan, how has your hobby of photography led you into further learning about the homeless world? She's totally grassroots, by the way. It's remarkable.
8: (laughs) Yeah, I'm more grassroots. (laughs) So um, actually I went on a tour with Matt State, who is head of psychiatry at UCSF. And um, UCSF runs a number of programs called Citywide throughout the city that helps the homeless and the mentally ill and the drug-addicted population. So one of the stops we went to was a center that it just moved into their new offices on Sixth Street. That is a probation center to help people coming out of jail um, to stay on their probation. To uh, they they help them find jobs and places to live.
6: How many people here have hung out in a probation center in San Francisco?
8: <laughs> just checking. <laughs> okay. So so. so There's a wonderful young guy that runs it, Alex Weil. And um, during the course of the tour, he mentioned that he would like pictures of some of the people, you know, participants in the program. And um, so I said, you know, I'm not very good, but that I would love to come and take pictures. And if you like any of them, then I, you know, I'd be happy to, you know, print them and frame them for you to hang in your center so he was really excited about that so he called me up and he said would I come to the Martin Luther King Day celebration that they were doing and take pictures well I was there for three hours and I um, took you know we had to get some people to sign a release form and not everybody wanted to sign that release form so I was very careful about you know whose pictures I took and whose I didn't, but um, it was uh, amazing to me because there were men, women, and there was even a woman there with her baby. And so um, I, I was a little apprehensive at first. You know, you think somebody coming out of jail, um, but I was really impressed with all of these people that were. Working hard to get their lives back on track just because of maybe one small mistake that they had made. I mean, we've all made mistakes, right? So, um, but they were really working hard and dedicated. And Alex was really dedicated. And at the end of the day, I sent him pictures, and um, he picked out a number of them, and and so they're they're now hanging in the probation center on Sixth Street. <laughs>
6: Okay, so final question. How has your work enriched your lives?
8: I do this work to make a difference in people's lives and in the lives of communities. I've also had a lot of fun doing it, and I've grown and learned a lot myself. I mean, really, like, touring, touring the line with Dell, going out on a boat with Buddy in Galveston, Texas, you know, um, riding in a... Google car with a sensor on it in Oakland and uh, you know these are when else would I have done something like that right and so and all these things have made differences to people uh, in those communities that they're in so um, I'm one lucky person I guess right that I get to do all these fun wonderful things
7: yeah I would just say we both feel really uh, really privileged to be able to help other people and um, I think if you don't do those things, boy you really miss out uh, because there's so much uh, there's much more joy in, in giving than receiving there really is and and so we. it's just been a privilege and um, you know despite all the issues that exist everywhere uh, one thing that this country we should really um, never forget and celebrate is there it has never been in the history of mankind anywhere uh, in the world uh, with a country that is as philanthropic as the United States of America. It does think about it. It does not exist anywhere else. It is ingrained in our culture. Uh, people really feel they have a responsibility to give back. Most people do, and they give and they give and they give. So we just feel that we're fortunate to be able to do some of these things, and um, that uh, a place like this, where where I can come and and talk about a radical idea like school choice, is just a great evening for me. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, it, I uh, it, it, and it's wonderful it uh, to be part of this community that has just really so many interesting um, initiatives and wonderful things going on, and the intellectual vitality of the pe- people who live here and their commitment to this community really make it a special place. So this is a great honor and privilege for us tonight.
6: Thank you, guys. We're lucky to have you. Thank you, Tom.
0: <laughs>